electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in last call, stocks come storming back. But if you missed the rally, there's still hope. A top stock picker says two names to buy right now. Peak politics. The House Speaker debacle nearing its most important point yet. Goldman Sachs, earnings on deck. And there's one thing that you need to watch. Film, shows, video games. Netflix making a big, bold new bet. But could it be a warning sign? Plus... Mounting backlash against academia, more business, and Wall Street leaders taking action over some soft responses to the terror attacks in Israel. And it is Make It Mondays. He is the entrepreneur who left a job at Apple to bring barbecue to Mexico, and now he is making millions. All that and much more over just 60 minutes. Belly up, buckle up, because last call is up right now. All right. Hello, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. We're going to get to all that. But first up on last call right now, a big potential deal to bring more oil to America. The Washington Post reporting that the White House is closing in on a deal with Venezuela. We would ease sanctions on their oil industry. And in return, Venezuelan strongman Nicolas Maduro would promise to hold more open and fair elections next year. Venezuela's last election widely seen as a fraud. Nicolas Maduro brutally crushed any pro-democracy rallies or marches in favor of his opponent. Now, that election aside, this deal is also likely about high oil and diesel fuel prices here in America. Now, a quick primer. Venezuelan oil is nasty stuff. It is, quite literally, sludge. But it is also key for making denser fuels like diesel and shipping fuel. You know that diesel prices have come down from their highs of last year. However... They are still about 85 cents per gallon above regular unleaded, which means that trucks, trains, ships are still paying more to fill up and potentially contributing to overall inflation. Venezuela, you may not know, has the biggest oil deposits in the world, but it has been a rolling economic and humanitarian disaster. Oil production has collapsed from about 3 million barrels per day 20 years ago to about 700,000 barrels per day. And as oil revenues have dropped, poverty has soared, with many Venezuelans quite literally starving. The Washington Post says the deal is not done yet and would be needed to sign at a meeting on Tuesday in Barbados. But if it is done, it could mean more Venezuelan oil is headed for America and some fuel prices could move lower ahead of next year's election here. Could also be good news, by the way, for Chevron which is the biggest Western oil investor in Venezuela, and any sort of detente would be good for that. All right, let's talk about all this, what it might mean, and maybe some of the motivations behind it. Joining us tonight, Unity of Chicago, Institute of Politics Director, CNBC contributor, and former U.S. Senator from the great state of North Dakota, Heidi Heidkamp, and former U.S. Ambassador to 
Venezuela. Patrick Duddy is currently the senior advisor for global affairs at Duke University. Ambassador Duddy, first to you, what do you believe is the true motivation behind this deal? Should we get it? Well, I think the very first thing, thing to remember is that the negotiations have been taking place between the Maduro regime and the opposition, um, not necessarily directly with the United States, though the United States has clearly been accompanying um, the progress of the deal. Um, and there are really uh, two or three, if you will, sets of issues that are important. On the one hand, of course, um, there is the humanitarian um, disaster which has unfolded since, in particular, 2013. More than 7 million Venezuelans have left their their country, and there are estimates that up to um, 7 million residents of Venezuela still need um, various kinds of humanitarian assistance. And then, of course, there is oil. Uh, um, um, as you uh, very correctly point out, uh, Venezuelan oil is typically um, very heavy, very sulfuric, it's sludge. Nevertheless, it is important, and I think the uh, the global economy mm -hmm. would like to see uh, Venezuela a uh, a player again in yeah. world oil markets. And, and, and we don't. Finally, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Ambassador. Oh, I was going to say, and finally, there's the political issue. Um, this has uh, become a uh, an authoritarian state, and the U.S. as well as many um, other democratic nations around the world yeah. have long been advocating for a return, a resurrection of Venezuelan democracy. And I, and I think, Senator Heidkamp, for, for me, the moral conflict is you, you don't want the people of Venezuela to suffer any more than they have because the suffering has been unimaginable for what could and should be the wealthiest nation in South America is arguably one of the least, if not the least, with so many problems. But at the same time, you as a former leading politician can understand the optics here. Okay, we canceled the, the Keystone XL pipeline, which was going to bring down very similar type of oil. And I know you, you know your oil from North Dakota. And so instead, we're now bringing it in theoretically from Venezuela. The optics of this are interesting, shall we say. You know, the optics are always going to be challenging, Brian, because anytime you're dealing with a negotiation where it appears that an autocratic, horrible leader is going to gain something, there's going to be criticism. But for the administration, this really is a two for one. If you look at refining capacity, one of the reasons why we knew we needed to export light, sweet crude, which is our what we call out of tight formations or out of what you see in shale play is we don't refine it in our country, but we do refine the oil that comes out of Venezuela. We do have the capacity to produce you know, products that uh, consumers can use. But for the administration, think about this. This is really a twofer. If they can, in fact, stabilize the Venezuelan government, right now we have a border crisis. Very many of those people seeking asylum are coming from Venezuela. If that government improves, if there's improvement and opportunity there, we also have the outside benefit of also improving the conditions at the border. And so it's not just about oil. I think it's also about this crisis that we have at the border and Venezuelans crossing. I've been on the bridge and saw set, you know million hundred, at the, that day thousands of people crossing just to get a sack of potatoes to feed their family. This is a crisis and if there's anything that we can do to alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people, we ought to consider it and maybe that's bad optics, but it might be very good 
politics. And under the reporting, Ambassador Duddy, of this deal, there would be outside election inspectors who would go into Venezuela and Caracas and and sort of oversee the election. But uh, talk to us about Nicolas Maduro. I mean, this is a deal that would ostensibly say, okay, you have a chance perhaps of losing next year. Now, call me a cynic. I guess I'm getting old. But the one thing I have learned studying history and talking about dictators or autocrats is that they're not super good at, you know, sticking to what they say they're going to do. Maybe if he pinky swears, it'll be a more fair election. We can get one. Certainly, Nicolas Maduro and his closest collaborators um, have um, long resisted any sort of um, concessions that would, in fact, endanger their position um, in the in the government. And indeed, years ago, at one point, his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, um, his brother actually um, publicly asserted that if the um, the Bolivarian revolution, as they called it, was in danger, that their um, their base should consider um, uh, resorting to the force of arms. Yeah. This deal is intended um, to do what we to to do what the 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 whole hemisphere has really wanted, which is to see the the regime moving in the direction of uh, yeah. um, of, of resurrecting the country's democracy, and that means free and fair elections and international observers. And as a piece of that, it has to mean that the key opposition figures will be permitted to run. Now, well, well, well do, Ambassador, Ambassador, I will say this, that the previous opposition, Juan Guaido, was he ran and then he was run out of the country. And in fact, now is just apparently pushed out of Colombia, where he may have overstayed his welcome as well. We know that that's what Venezuela tends to do. And I'm sorry to cut you off running out of time. One more comment from Senator Heidkamp. Heidi, I hear your point about the border crisis, probably an under under discussed topic, to be frank. But that would also not include what's going on with Iranian oil as well. Iran, under sanctions, has surged not only their oil exports, but their money. Everyone's fighting over the $6 billion payment, which is kind of ridiculous, given that Iran's foreign currency reserves have gone up probably 40 to $60 billion the last three years because of increased oil sales. What, can we do more to be more domestic here? And by the way, it's not good for climate change either, but drilling it in Venezuela, shipping it on a giant carbon-spewing super tanker as opposed to piping it from Canada. Well, I mean, well, we can we can talk about this, but it's a finite amount of market for oil. The more oil we put into the market, the more challenged it's going to be for Russians, for Iranians. You know, so if you're looking at the administration, you say, what's the challenge today that we have to meet? We have to meet the border crisis and we have to get more oil into the pipeline so that we can, in fact, take money out of the pockets of dictators. Unfortunately, so many, you know, our our oil in North Dakota, it's democracy oil. And we'd love to see um, that produced and used more often. But not oil is created equal. And you know that, Brian. And we have not turned our refining capacity over to light sweet. And so we're going to be buying oil from Saudi Arabia. We're going to be buying oil from Venezuela. And yes, tar sand or oil sand oil from Canada. We we, we always will have to buy oil, but we just probably, quick last word to you, Ambassador Duddy, because I apologize for cutting off, should probably do it from countries that don't necessarily not like us. Right. 
But we have a real interest in seeing the return of democracy to de in Venezuela, um, humanitarian aid on the ground, and um, a um, an easing of the, yeah. the migrant flow of desperate Venezuelans out of the country. Oh, yeah, and we'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll, just a quick anecdote, because I literally watched a video a couple years ago of, of Venezuelans scurrying through the trash to find something to eat. And then I saw the Venezuelan oil minister in person, and my producer, Fahima, at the time, looks at his wife. He was with his wife and said, those are $1,500 shoes on the wife of the right. Venezuelan oil minister. And it just goes to show you some of the hypocrisy of that type of regime. Patrick Duddy, Senator Heidkamp, thank you both very much, Ambassador. Appreciate you coming on Last Call. Be well. All right. In the meantime, it was a good start to the week for your investments. The Dow rising more than 300 points. The Nasdaq and S&P jolt jumping more than a percent. As for the studs and the duds inside the market, the biggest winner of the day, Etsy, up 5.5%. The biggest decliner, Moderna, down another 6.5%. What's going on there? We'll have more later on in the hour. But up next here, showdown at the D.C. Corral. We're going to get the latest with the House Speaker drama ahead. Plus, Goldman Sachs set the show off its latest numbers. Will David Solomon silence any doubters? At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the CNBC-style stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, some significant news for Merck. The FDA has approved the expanded use of its Keytruda drug. It's an immunotherapy drug in treating lung cancer. It'll specifically impact early-stage patients who can get tumors removed by surgery. Shares of Merck are up after hours, about 1% on that news. All right, next up, the race for the speaker's gavel, now coming to some kind of a head. A high noon, literally, showdown setting up tomorrow on Capitol Hill. They have now been without a speaker for 13 days, CNBC Washington correspondent Emily Wilkins covering the story closely. All right, Emily, what are you hearing? Will Jim Jordan, the House Republicans nominee, actually have the votes? Brian, that is the question in Washington right now. Everyone's been trying to figure it out. Like you said, the House is going to be voting tomorrow at noon on the next Speaker of the House. It's going to be a little bit like we saw in January with them doing the roll call vote. So one by one by one by one, we'll slowly figure it out. Now, remember, Jordan, on Friday, they took a vote behind closed doors and 55 Republicans said that they would not support him on the floor. 
But Jordan and, Jordan and his allies have been hustling. They've turned some opponents into supporters. One member that they flipped is Mike Rogers. He's the chair of the Armed Services Committee. And he said today that he spoke with Jordan several times over the weekend and said he's now confident that Jordan is going to help, help pass key defense and funding bills. And he's also, him and other lawmakers, has basically called for Republicans to unify and rally around. But yet there are other lawmakers that are very frustrated with what's happened these last two weeks. Congressman Don Bacon tweeted today that the folks yelling that we need to put out the House fire started the fire. He said that this started when 4% of Republicans voted to remove Speaker McCarthy and said that they can't have a process where a few break the rules. Now, Democrats all plan to back Hakeem Jeffries tomorrow, meaning that any five Republicans can deny Jim Jordan the gavel. The pressure on Republicans is also going to increase this week as the Biden administration is planning to send fundraising requests for Israel. Senator Chuck Schumer, who is back this week after visiting the area, said that the package will contain intelligence, diplomatic and humanitarian aid. He laid out the upcoming process on the Senate floor this afternoon. The Senate must go first. I know that the House is in disarray, but we cannot wait for them. The needs are too great. And if we pass a strong package with strong bipartisan support, it will importune the House somehow or other to act, despite the morass they are in. If Jordan's not able to get to 217 tomorrow, a number of things could happen. We could see another vote for Jordan. We could see another Republican try to run for speaker. Or Republicans could give temporary powers to Patrick McHenry. He's currently the acting speaker pro tem, but in that role, he can't pass any legislation. And Brian, that's really going to be the big thing here. Can the House actually begin to move past the gridlock to get things done? Or are we going to be stuck without a speaker for yet another week? Wow. Emily Wilkins, the D.C. drama, a story that keeps on giving. Emily, thank you. All right, next up, another story to keep a close eye on tomorrow. Goldman Sachs' latest results, the stakes pretty high for CEO David Solomon. And there's one key thing that investors should be looking for, and that is, well, here to tell us, Kate Kelly, CNBC contributor, New York Times reporter, joining us now. Kate, I wasn't going to steal the thunder like so many on this side of the camera. Tell us what is the main thing that we should be watching for from Goldman tomorrow. Well, Brian, that was very generous of you. Um, I think given that Goldman is sort of retreating back to its sweet spot, which is very much, you know, deal advisory work, the traditional investment banking where you're advising companies on M&A or also underwriting equity and debt offerings and or sales and trading, you know, the market making and, and also some of the um, the positions that Goldman takes for inventory. I think we want to see how that segment performs. I mean, it is traditionally uh, their huge revenue draw, it remains, by and large, their biggest business segment. So we want to see how well they did. And I was talking to an analyst just a bit ago who said he wants to see how they stack up against J.P. Morgan um, and other banks that have reported so far. All right. Uh, new reporting out of The Wall Street Journal, Kate, says that there shows that CEO David Solomon feeling a little bit of heat with that consumer lending arm. Now, as of late, the company is selling, it's called Green Sky, at a loss Goldman purchased the lender last year, gives out consumer loans for things like home renovations. Then you got the firm's credit card business, the Goldman Apple credit card, the Goldman General Motors card, kind of facing regulatory questions. How does this, and by the way, it's not all, it's not all Solomon. There's a board, there was Lloyd Blankfein, some of these plans probably put in place years ago, but how does this kind of impact the C-suite? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually a really great subject for debate. And I think we have to err on the side of saying that David Solomon, the current CEO, is accountable for what's going on with Green Sky, the Apple card and the consumer business in general. So a bit of history. In 2016, Marcus, which was the name uh, of their consumer banking division named after their founder, was unveiled very much under Lloyd Blankfein. And one of the big cheerleaders for it at the time was Stephen Schur, who was a super senior partner, went on to become CFO. But he was overseeing the Marcus, the nascent Marcus division at mm -hmm. that time. Fast forward a year or so, David Solomon, then co-president, along with Harvey Schwartz, uh, presented to the board a five-year plan for how to grow revenues and how to how to kind of expand the business generally. And one of their key tenets was expanding Marcus. Then Solomon takes over from Blankfein and he proceeds to grow it. And he was very enthusiastic about it for quite a few years. I mean, he bought Green Sky, as you mentioned. He It was under his watch that the Apple card, the very much vaunted partnership, I yeah. should say, with Apple was was, you know, unveiled. And they had other ideas for other services, not just savings and loans, but, you know, checking accounts and other features that might pair some of their asset mm -hmm. management sensibilities with the traditional consumer banking. So the thing is that it started before David, but he did double down on the business. And now they're having to do basically a 180. And one thing you've seen is a real outflow of talent, mm -hmm. Brian. Uh, Stephanie Cohen, a uh, senior partner who was put in charge of consumer uh, not so long ago, taking an extended leave from the firm. Yeah. Before her, Omer Ismail, who was one of the early um, overseers of that business left. So they've had a real talent drain, and I don't know if that's the chicken or the egg, but it's definitely been part of the problem. Well, we're going to find out. They're giving us both the hook with the music, by the way. Kate Kelly, maybe Solomon taking too much heat. Maybe they got to blame the predecessors who put it in place. Kate, thank you. All right, still ahead. Forget the Magnificent Seven. There may be some gems in the other 493 members of the S&P 500 that have not been getting any love. Katie Stockton has some names you're going to want to hear next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, time now for your Monday RBI. And right now, let's take a fun little, I mean, fun our style, right? Little look at stocks, specifically the biggest index of them all, the S&P 500. It's had a good year so far, up about 14%. By the way, a lot better than many experts and pundits were predicting. But looks can also be deceiving because this run is nearly entirely due to just seven stocks. These are what you've referred to, heard on this very fine network, by the way, as the Magnificent Seven Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. And they are all way up this year. NVIDIA, it's the big winner, up over 200% this year. Meta and Tesla, they have also doubled. The worst performer is Apple, and that stock is still up 37%. That's the worst. And like that super smart kid in your class ruining the grading curve, I'm sorry, these stocks also messing with the average because as Apollo Investment notes, if you stripped out those seven stocks, 
the rest of the index has done basically nothing. All right, what are we looking at here? All right, or listening to on the radio? There's a yellow line that's going up, up, and up. This is the Magnificent Seven. It has had a good year, had a little, oh, little bit of a downturn in August, but otherwise still very nicely. The white line here on the bottom, the literal flat line, that is the S&P 493. That is every other stock except for the S&P. And you could look at the gap. I mean, look at the outperformance there. So in other words, if you bought the S&P 500, like in an ETF, the SPY, you really can thank seven stocks or 1.4% of the index for pretty much all of your 14% gain this year. One point, that's a good math question. When can 1.4 equal 14%? Well, there you go. By the way, I can't, given tonight's game, I can't not do this. That's a very bad Chargers logo. Go Bolts tonight. Don't laugh at that, Kareem. It wasn't good. I know. All right. Anyway, that, not the Chargers thing, that got us thinking, always a dangerous thing to do, are there any great stocks sitting in the unloved scrap heap of the S&P 493? Joining us now is Fairlead Strategies founder and managing partner, Katie Stockton. I won't ask you to make a Cowboys or Chargers logo. Don't worry, Katie. But let's dig through it because I refuse to believe that seven stocks are great and 493 are not good. There's got to be some unloved gems in there. You brought some names. Thank you. And I was very surprised by your first name, Wells Fargo. Well, this is not a winner, right, this year. This is one that's been lagging, and it's been lagging alongside the rest of the bank stock. So it's not alone in its sector and having underperformed the broader market. And yet Wells Fargo is now oversold in both absolute and relative terms. It's already absorbed its earnings report, and it held some support on its chart. So it's in a long-term trading range. That support is holding, and there's room to initial resistance for Wells Fargo. We also have both in Wells and more broadly in the bank sector, some buy signals, essentially oversold buy signals from the DeMarc indicators that we find intriguing. So that while it's been a laggard, we think that there's some potential in turnarounds in this environment. We wouldn't be trafficking, generally speaking, in turnaround type of setups unless the broader market was wow. conducive to that. And I think the broader market has an opportunity for a good relief rally here. Well, listen, you do technicals. I know from a news perspective, Wells Fargo is a company that has just not been able to get out of its own way. WFC, we're watching. The other one is, an, is another bank. It is not nearly as big, not nearly as well known. Or no, it's not a bank. It's the uh, One Oak. It's not, you're not doing Bank of Oklahoma, BOK. You're doing OKE, correct? Which is One Oak, which is the, the, the natural gas company, not the Bank of Ozarks. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. So this is obviously a different sector, the energy sector. And energy has had good momentum and good relative strength. And what I feel like no one's talking about is that natural gas prices have a pretty impressive base breakout. And that breakout oh. is something that provides a bullish takeaway from a long-term perspective. And we have certainly seen some of the stocks that are related to natural gas benefit from that. And One Oak has a pretty fresh breakout on its chart. It cleared some minor resistance. And if it clears additional resistance around mm -hmm. 72, well, the targeted level is, is well above current levels. So we're encouraged by the breakout. We like the relative strength, at least for now, behind natural gas stocks. All right. And if you had to pick out one tech stock, which you did, 
This next one, dare I say, would have not been intuitive to me. <laughs> and it's Intuit, right? Um, so now Intuit has actually beat Apple on the year. And yet I feel like people talk about Apple a whole lot more. Intuit has a very solid uptrend. In fact, it really didn't correct with the broader market in earnest over the last couple of months. And I think that's intriguing. It suggests that there's an underlying bid to the stock. You can look at any momentum gauge, and for the most part, it's pointing higher behind into it. So that's compelling to me. And it actually maintained its secular bullish trend even throughout 2022 when it was downtrending on an intermediate-term basis. I love it. We've got Wells Fargo. We've got One Oak, the natural gas company, and we've got Intuit. Katie Stockton, thanks for rolling with it, having a little bit of fun. Of and while, while, I've got the, while I've got the Telestrator here, I'm going to make my prediction San Diego, because they're always going to be San Diego to me, Kareem. You know that. 43, Dallas, minus 8. Take that to the bank. <laughs> That'll be tonight's score. All right, still ahead. From Squid Games to video games, Netflix taking a big new roll of the dice. Is it a warning sign for investors? Laura Mark is here to talk about Netflix. Welcome back. Today is the kickoff of a pretty major week for earnings. On Wednesday, we're going to be expecting results out of Netflix. Investors will be eyeing things like company spending, ad revenue, subscriber numbers. Now, a number of analysts have already cut guidance for the streaming giant, but there are now reports that Netflix is looking to enter the crowded world of video games to compete with giants like Sony and Microsoft. Now, Netflix already does have a number of mobile games, but this could expand into higher-end TV or PC gaming. Now, the move comes as Netflix has been struggling to sell ads on its streaming service. Earlier this month, Netflix brought in a new ad chief in an attempt to fix that. It is a period of uncertainty for Netflix and its investors. Because listen to this. This could be an RBI. Despite all the hype around the company, Netflix stock hasn't done much at all. In fact, over five years, if you had just bought it and held it, Netflix stock is essentially flat all while the NASDAQ has doubled. So will this expanded investment into video games, if it happens, help Netflix, or will it just be kind of like the stock lately, dead money? Joining us now is senior research analyst at Needham & Company, Laura Martin, who has been concerned slash critical of Netflix for years and been correct. Sometimes I feel like you were probably, it was like you were the last one on the island, Netflix island, right? You were the last one out there uh, willing to say what you actually thought because you live in L.A.? Would video games be some big win for the company and the stock? So I'm worried, Brian, because they now have 400 people working on video games and they don't charge for this service. So we're not getting any kind of positive return on capital. I think they're trying to I think this is a smart move they've announced today, which is they're going to pivot to have strategy more around their hit originals, like they'll have a Stranger Things game and they'll have, you know, House of Cards game. And that should drive fandom, especially at the younger end, towards the originals. So include, sort of increase the engagement with the originals. But remember, Disney has tried this numerous times. Same strategy. Let's make games around our amazing content. And it doesn't work. One, because it's unclear to me that that interactivity 
game making is really hard and the audiences are really brutal mm -hmm. in terms of their feedback loops. Whereas, you know, sort of normal Netflix fare is lean back and video games are very much lean forward and fandom. They're hard people to manage and the fandom is really vicious. Let me ask you a, 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 maybe a more vicious question. Um, is <laughs> is Net Netflix used to be, and maybe still is, a must have. They always had a show, Stranger Things, Squid Games, many, 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 many others before that. I haven't thought about Netflix in a while from a viewing perspective. Is Netflix still a must-have? It is not. I, I do not think it is. We're getting churn. Mm. So churn for everyone is elevated. Churn for Netflix has had the biggest increase. Um, Amazon Prime still has the biggest overall churn, 23% uh, a year. But Netflix churn is increasing. And I think that's because other services are bundling or they have better content or they have other, they have other things to offer. So I think Netflix got there first. But now there's five other competitors that are discounting their service or bundling it with other services. And I do think Netflix is losing its edge. And that's it. I think you nailed it. Like they're, they're their own thing. And you've got all these big players, including our parent company, Comcast, not only with Hulu, but also Peacock, Disney. You know, Netflix started it all. They were kind of the, the lone wolf. But you wondered, is the lone wolf, you know, is there a chance? I know they're huge somebody would ever buy Netflix? You'd have to see. I mean, right now the streaming business is losing money and Netflix is pretty darn big. So I would say it'd be more likely that they would buy somebody else. I mean, part of the problem they have is they don't have a deep library the way Disney does or Paramount does where they paid for the content of the library 30 years ago. They have to make everything from scratch in today dollars. So, I mean, a good idea for them would be to buy a deep library the way Amazon Prime bought MGM. That's actually a cheaper way to do it than try to race and create your own library at current value dollars. So I see Netflix as more of a buyer than a seller, because um, I don't know who gets into the streaming business while it's all still losing money. Yeah, so at some point, they got to figure out how to make the money, but that's for another show and another episode. Laura Martin, good stuff. Bye, Brian. Bye-bye. Right. Tough talk on Netflix. All right, coming up. Dialing up the pressure, more business leaders hitting universities where it hurts over controversial and often mealy-mouthed responses to Hamas's terror attacks. How far will the fallout go? That is next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. In the wake of Hamas's attacks on Israel, more Wall Street and business leaders are pushing back against some of academia's seeming refusal to more firmly condemn them. Here's the latest. Former U.S. Ambassador to China John Huntsman and his family will, quote, close their checkbooks to his alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. The Huntsman family made its fortune in chemical products. And in a letter to the president of the Ivy League school, Huntsman said the university is, quote, become deeply adrift in ways that make it almost unrecognizable. This comes less than a week after Apollo CEO Mark Rowan also said that UPenn's president should resign and urged fellow alum to stop donating money to the school as well. It's not any better at Harvard. According to the New York Times, mega donor Citadel CEO Ken Griffin contacting the head of the university's board last week, demanding it more forcefully condemn Hamas's attacks on Israel. So where does all this go? Will more powerful business leaders cease their donations and push for more change at the top of universities? Let's talk about it now with Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt. Jonathan, um, it's good to have you on again, although I certainly wish it was under far, far different circumstances. 
Um, this does not seem like a lot of things to be cooling off. If anything, it seems to be ramping up. How far do you see this going? Well, first of all, Brian, it's good to be back on the show. Um, what I would say is that the situation in the Middle East is really unprecedented. The massacre that occurred last weekend, some 1,400 Israelis burned and butchered and bludgeoned to death. Those that were in shot were seized as hostages. It is a horrific situation and a clear case of good versus evil. And what you're seeing at Harvard, at the University of Pennsylvania, at NYU and other universities, it's finally a reckoning with the sort of moral relativism that has descended upon these institutions of higher learning. Why? What's, the, what's there? What do you what do you think? There? And some of these some of them we've called them this. Some of these responses have been, in my, my term, mealy-mouthed. Yeah. Well, university presidents who seem so quick to jump on every perceived microaggression or every you know, ill-considered statement on other issues in the face of evil have dithered, have equivocated. And I was talking to someone just a few minutes ago. Think about this, Brian. It's been nine days since we had the worst terrorist massacre since 9-11. Why are these university presidents failing to find their moral compass? But here's the thing, Brian. Universities are not just students in classrooms. They are communities with multiple stakeholders, including donors, including alumni, by the way, including the employers. So when Bill Ackman says, I'm no longer going to recruit kids who demonstrate such extraordinary lack of common sense, Harvard's got to take that seriously. And by the way, I don't know if you know or not, but today, Les Wexner, founder of The Limited, announced that he was breaking with the Kennedy School because, again, of Harvard's failure to see what the rest of the world has recognized, a clear issue of moral consciousness. We had, I had not seen that. Uh, but again, to our point at the beginning, Jonathan, it seems to be, you know, a lot of these things will be very hot at first and kind of cool off. This appears to be gaining some momentum, probably because people like Ackman, who they're not afraid to put their head up. And so that sort of emboldens others who may have been a little bit more reticent to come yeah. up. I'm sure you're talking to Wall Street and business leaders all oh, yeah. the time. Do you believe that pressure, the money pressure, the Wall Street pressure, the jobs pressure will continue to be applied until some changes at some of these schools are made? Yeah, I think something has changed, Brian. I think, again, on the issues that seem to pop up all the time, the red versus blue, conservative versus liberal, right versus left. These universities don't know what to do, but you know what? This was a clear case of evil. This was a slaughter. And so when Ken Griffin leaps in and says, enough. Again, when Mark Rowan from Apollo leaps in and says, enough. And his close the checkbook campaign has gotten a lot of attention. And just to put that in some context for your viewers, Brian, a few about a month ago, there was this session at the at University of Pennsylvania called Palestine Rights, and they brought in like well-known anti-Semites like Roger Waters and Mark Rowan, someone who has been a 40-year donor to the school, said, "Enough." And so I think Mark and Bill, Ken Griffey, and and uh, Les Wexner are are blazing a new path. I expect other donors from other universities will follow. And we know that, you know, for folks like King Griffin, the money talks. I mean, and then that's and, and we'll see if people walk because of this 
Money talk. I mean, Jonathan, so what is if there's somebody out there that's a you know, business leader, a big maybe even not a big donor, just a donor to their alumni, their school that maybe they otherwise love a business leader. What is your message to them? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think all of us have have agency and free will. And the donor doesn't just need to do what the school says. You have the power to say, hey, wait a second. I don't agree with this. And you can use your resources, whether you're donating money, you're volunteering your time, you're just posting or using social media. Whatever the case may be, Brian, you have the free will to say, wait a second, I'm part of this community too, and this is wrong. Donors can talk, alumni can engage, volunteers can get involved. I think, again, the university needs to recognize, maybe now university presidents will, that their community is not just like a group of far-left kids on campus. They need to be responsive to all the varied yeah. interests. Did you see, Jonathan, did you see the University of Florida's response? Boy, Senator Sass got it exactly right. So that goes kind of to your point. I mean, the reality is, is these university leaders must have a moral compass. If Ben Sass can get it right, then the president of Harvard can get it right, then they can all get it right. And it's not too much to ask to call out hate when it happens, period. Jonathan Greenblatt, Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, best to you. Thank you. Always good to see you, Ryan. All right. All right, coming up, and a much lighter note, would you ditch a job at Apple? Apple for barbecue? One entrepreneur did exactly that, and now he is cooking up millions. Make it Mondays is next. Welcome back. It's not only Monday, it's Make It Mondays. And your next guest went from working at Apple as the head of marketing and education for Latin America to starting up a Texas-style barbecue business in Mexico. Here's how he did it. There were no barbecue restaurants here. There was a great opportunity to open up a new food category in a city of 23 million people. I'm Dan DeFasi, I'm 44 years old. I live here in Mexico City. My Texas style barbecue restaurants brought in over $9 million in revenue last year. I got a job at the Apple Store in Soho, New York. I was teaching the iPhone on stage, and then over the three years I grew in my position, I became head of marketing in education for Latin America. One day I was sitting on the mountain with my friend who also worked for Apple, and I said, hey, let's uh, do something else and let's change our lives. I think because of the name being Pinche Gringo, it means darn American. And I think it gave us a bit of humility. Those first couple of weeks, making $30 a day was definitely challenging. One day, a reporter came, she saw the restaurant, she brought her cameras in. We were on public television in an episode of her show. Barbecue is como comida comfort. And since then, lines everywhere. We are a place that sells 15 to 20 metric tons of meat per month, so meat is absolutely the biggest expense in the business. Labor cost is not as high as it is in the U.S. I love going to work. When you love your work so much, it doesn't feel like work anymore. And I'm living that dream. And Dan DeFossi, who lives in Mexico City, but is from Long Island and is here on set. We have, I think you missed an opportunity, by the way, because you inverted it. You should call it Mextex. 
<laughs> and by the way, you can use that. But yes. how do you, when you say to somebody, I'm going to start a Texas-style barbecue place in Mexico City, I would imagine it'd be like, the gringo's gone loco. Yeah, my dad wasn't too happy about it. He told me to go back to the U.S. Your dad but... was wrong. If he's watching right now, Dad, we love you, but you were wrong. <laughs> so what was your first hurdle? I mean, you speak fluent Spanish. Yeah, I do now. Okay, now. Yeah, when I got there, I didn't, but I learned along the way. Okay. Mm -hmm. Challenges of opening a business in Mexico City are... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of cultural differences between the way uh, Americans think about business and the way they think about it in Mexico. And even working with my partner, we had some challenges, but you learn along the way. And uh, it's been a pleasure. I mean, it's been a, I'm very grateful for the opportunity in Mexico uh, to be able to do what I do. And the community has embraced us. And how big are you and how big would you like to be? Well, we're going to be opening up our eighth restaurant uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll have uh, 10 by the end of the next year. And I don't know, we'd like to grow organically. If we feel like there's an opportunity and there's a place and somewhere where we can bring our barbecue where it's the same quality as in the first restaurant, we'll do it. And yeah, it's funny because we think, <clears throat> I don't think of barbecue as necessarily Mexican, but of course it is, there's a lot of tradition and history. You think of Tex-Mex, certainly. I still think you should invert it. Was there a hole in, in this barbecue market in Mexico City, I've never been to Mexico City. It's the top of my list. There was, there's a hole in this market? Well, there was no barbecue when we opened. And none. There was none. I find that weird. And I wouldn't call it Mextex because authenticity is something that we can't find too, in too many businesses these days. Yeah. And I think that we were able to bring the authentic Texas barbecue to Mexico because a lot of Mexicans will never have the opportunity to go to the U.S. So when they step into our restaurant... They, they're in Austin. They're in a barbecue restaurant. We don't have tortillas or aguachata. You're not Jamaica. trying to be them. You're being you and bringing the... Bring, bring. Would this concept work in Europe? Have, yeah, you thought about, so. have you thought about that? It's closer to Long Island in some ways. I think so. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we celebrate Fourth of July and Thanksgiving and Super Bowl, and people have never been able to have the opportunity to go to an authentic Fourth of July celebration. They've seen it on TV. And so when we bring that, people will get really excited about the authenticity. Yeah. And is there an expat? I've got to imagine there's a huge expat community in Mexico City. Yeah, there is. And they come, and they especially during the holidays. But uh, 95, 96% of our clients are Mexican because they want to see and feel a different experience. And of course, you make good meat, doesn't matter where it is, what it's called, yeah. and people will come to. What's, uh, your to what, what's the difference? You never run a restaurant here in the United States, but, but what is your best-selling barbecue item and how might it compare to what would sell in Austin? Right. Well, our ribs are that what people know, and so it's the highest selling, but our signature is the brisket, and you can't find brisket anywhere. Uh, with how soft it is um, in that market. And oh. so people come in and grab the brisket as well. Dan DeFasse, Pinche Gringo, Make It Mondays. You left us, we appreciate it, and you left us really, really hungry. Dan, <laughs> thank you. Congrats on your success. Thanks for having me. Do appreciate me. that. All right. All right, that's it for Make It Monday. By the way, check that out tomorrow as well. And we will see you on Last Call tomorrow night. Have a good one. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. 
Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Tremphia.